All right, as you are turning to Romans uh, chapter 11, we're going to be in verses 17 through 24 this morning, and, or, or 13 through 24, uh, and what we're going to see is that uh, God calls us to mortify our arrogance, right? To, to recognize that we have been chosen for a purpose, and that purpose is missional. It is not for ourselves. We've not been saved so that we, in some way, shape, or form, uh, appear better than other people. Because what is less attractive? What is less hospitable than somebody inviting you over to make sure that you know that you are less than them? Like, right? Have you ever been invited to somebody's house where they just talked about themselves the entire time and could care less, were not curious about you at all, and the only thing they were interested in is making sure you knew who they were? but not necessarily interested in who you are or were or could be in Jesus. And so, as we hear from this text this morning, let us do so with tender consciences, with humility, because there are some difficult aspects, uh, and we need to hear it in the power of the Spirit, but also understanding that Christ is interceding and advocating for us to hear rightly God's Word this morning. And so, the key truth that I want us to walk away with is that God calls us to mortify our pride as part of our maturing relationship with him and others. Let me say that again. God calls us to mortify our pride as part of our maturing relationship with him and others. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 11, 13 through 24. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." But if some of the branches were broken off, and although you, uh, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated, cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back in to their own olive tree? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, let me ask you, as we step into this text, what impact does pride have on your ability to grow in relationship to others? Who among you has ever said, you know, 
I think what I would like from my friend is more arrogance, like more them touting how much better they are than me. I really think that could take our relationship to the next level. I really think that would be helpful in marriage if, if my spouse consistently let me know how much lesser I am than them. How many of you have ever said that? Show of hands. My hand's not raised, by the way. It was just in case. I didn't want you to be alone. Right? This is not something that we would ever suggest is an additive. And yet, what we also need to recognize is that it is probably one of the more destructive relational forces in all of the world. There is no greater destroyer of marriages than pride and arrogance. Right? Most of the things that are manifest are symptoms of pride and arrogance. There is no, no greater destruction in families, churches, right? Churches are blown apart by pride and arrogance, unwillingness to repent and be humble and seek the Lord, and unwillingness to say, while I still think I'm right, something is so wrong that it is dishonoring to the Lord. We need to pause and pray and repent and weep and seek the Lord. Think about what that would do to our relationships if that was our natural bent. Notice Paul even hints at this when he says, look, all things are lawful, right? You, you, you can do anything you want because God has set you free. You can eat shellfish. You can eat bacon. You can wear mixed nylon clothing. You can wear breathable clothing. You can wear fishing shirts. It's fine. Leviticus doesn't have a say anymore in this regard. It, it, that, in fact, is no longer missional for us to do those kinds of things. We don't need to stand apart because of uh, outward manifestation. We now stand apart because of an inward humility that Christ has granted us by saving us, right? Nobody's going to look on what you wear and know you believe in Jesus. That doesn't set you apart anymore. That was old covenant. In the new covenant, what sets us apart is the transformation of the heart as manifested in word and deed. And what greater manifestation than humility. And so you can be right. You can be right as rain about something, but approach it in the most unwise, unloving, unchristlike fashion, and it is destructive to the relationship. And so this is what Paul's trying to get at, because remember, he's got a church that's divided. And just to remind us of who this church is, lest we should forget, it's a group of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. The Jewish Christians more than likely were saved at Pentecost. And they did what the Lord called them to do. They were missional. They carried the gospel forward as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it worked. In fact, it worked so well that the church grew from the majority culture, which is Jewish Christian, so they became the minority culture, which is an interesting shift and far more uh, decentering than we, we would know at current. And now the Gentiles, which remember Gentiles, everybody who's not Jewish. So in Rome, you could have had people from Syria. You could have had people from Babylon. You could have had people from Spain. You could have had people from, certainly would have had from uh, various countries in Africa, which are different cultures. Right? So it was, that, was, that Gentile designation is still a hodgepodge even unto itself. It would not have been a unified race or culture. It just meant you weren't Jewish. So think of all of the distractions and difficulties even within that camp, much less between the two groups. And you do remember that the Jewish Christians were exiled from Rome by one of the governors, and therefore the Gentile Christians who were new kids on the block, they were the younger brother, 
took the church over. And they saw that as a sign of God loving them more. That though they didn't have the covenant and they didn't have the pedigree and they didn't have all that stuff, they were now more beloved because the Lord had turned the Roman church over to them. And so when in God's providence, the Jewish Christians were allowed to come back, the Gentile Christians were unwilling to give up their power. And why the Jewish Christians came seeking power is a question in and of itself. But it started this argument. Who is more beloved of God based on what? And so Paul steps into this argument with the gospel. And he keeps pointing him over and over and over again to the person and work of Christ. And remember what we said about Romans 9 through 11. If you read or you hear sermons on Romans 9 through 11 and the conclusion is not that you are more missional as a result, you read it, it was preached, you heard it wrong. If you encounter the doctrine of predestination and election and it doesn't increase your fervor for the lost, then you have misapplied that doctrine in the way that Paul has applied it. Notice every time he gets into it, it causes him to recognize that he would give up his own salvation, his own life, just to bring people into the kingdom. Fortunately, he doesn't have to do that in full. And so we come to this place where Paul had been talking essentially to the Jews. And part of it, you, you got to know, is like if you're a Jewish Christian, it would be even more uh, obnoxious and devastating to have your own brothers and sisters persecuting you. Remember what Jesus said in John 16? He said, your own brothers and sisters are going to kill you and kick you out of the synagogues, meaning Jewish folks, and think they are doing service to God. Paul himself would have known better than anybody. That's what he was doing. And so think of the relationship between the Jewish Christian and the Jew, who would see the Jewish Christian as having uh, uh, turned against Yahweh. That would have been an even more difficult relationship. And he is telling them, you must still love your brothers and sisters who will seek to persecute you religiously, politically, and at every turn. And he's also now turning to the Gentile Christians and saying, now you can't forget either. You guys can't get arrogant and think you don't have a part in this to play either. This, you are unified in the mission of God to see the people of God restored. Now, as we look at this text, it's very important that you not read it individualistically and over-personally. Because you could think that you could lose your salvation. Am I, Cameron Barham, a Gentile, could I be broken off and thrown away? No, he's actually talking about generations. And this is actually a great caution to us. And so let's step into the text and hear what the Lord has to say to us in and through the power of the Spirit. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So he's, he's, he's kind of turning to the audience. So this is something that uh, oftentimes that, that has to be done. You've you got to talk to different groups of people in the church because they have different things kind of going on, different ways of thinking. We're not flat in this regard. He says, so I'm talking to you Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow so he doesn't understand how the math works. Paul recognizes that there's a mystery to this 
that, that he doesn't control, that he doesn't understand, and so he is thankful that the Lord is sovereign and predestines and elects and uses things beyond his understanding. That takes great humility. Too often for us, one of the more arrogant ways in which we approach the Lord is we say, if I don't understand that it can't be true. If in my limited understanding of things, gifts, life experience, knowledge, uh, eminent frame, however you want to say that, if I can't fully understand it, then I cannot submit to it. Or I don't trust you. I don't care that you said it. I don't care that you say it's the better way to go. I still think this is better for me. Your law can't tell me what to do. That is arrogance with a high hand. And so Paul's confessing, I'm not exactly sure how this works, but somehow that it would make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Now, what's interesting is the steps in that process. We've seen this, actually. Remember in the book of Acts, when Paul, after he'd been redeemed by Christ himself, and he goes and starts planting churches, what, did, what happened with the Jews? They got jealous. Now, what's interesting is in this process, that jealousy doesn't automatically translate into salvation. It translates into salvation for some, but persecution for Paul and the other Christians who were planting churches. If you remember, they would oftentimes beat up or, or seize and arrest the people that had helped Paul in any way, shape, or form speak in the synagogues, right? They were constantly persecuting Paul. Why? Because they were jealous. There's even a statement that is made by one of the, one of the political officials. He says, these men are turning the world upside down. They are a real threat to the kingdom of man. And so we see that this, this process would have been costly to Paul. It did cost him significantly. He was imprisoned. And how often did he have to defend his apostleship? Because people were constantly saying, well, if he's such a great apostle, then why does the Lord leave him in prison? Well, the answer is to redeem praetorian guards and write letters to the churches that would last for generations. And so he was constantly having to fight against this, but yet, yet he did not let it deter him from being missional. How many of us, it doesn't take much. A huff or a puff from someone, and we are set to flight like birds. So why would we think we could run with the horses when we can't even do what's necessary to stay on the porch, as Jeremiah would say? And so Paul is in this and understands that it's going to be costly to him, and he understands it's going to be costly to the Gentiles who are Christians. It's going to be costly to the Jews who are Christians because you, you go inciting jealousy in a group of people, and they will hurt you. And so he goes on, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Consider what he's saying. He's saying if Jesus can redeem a Jew who has hardened himself, who has harmed other Christians and Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, what other explanation could there be if they were to come into the kingdom but that that we would have to say the resurrection power of Christ is true? We would have to be in awe. 
Too many of us want to logically get people to come into the kingdom. Now, I'm not against logic, clearly. I would hope I can be illogical, but that's sinful, not, not spiritual. But we recognize that you're not going to save people apologetically. God can use that as vehicle. Do not hear me speak against it, but too often we want control. Parents, family members who have unbelieving children or unbelieving family members. How often do we, do we instead of seeking to pursue them relationally, mortifying our pride and our arrogance about our saveness and their lostness, how often are we pushing them away? And you may say, well, what about the predestined grace of God? Yes, that's the other side of the coin. I'm talking to you about the coin on which you are on the side. And so it matters that, that we recognize that, that you can't save someone with your own power and strength and wisdom and effort. It doesn't mean that you're not participating. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't use logic or apologetics where it's appropriate in the power of the Holy Spirit. But at the end of the day, it's the resurrecting power of Christ that must, that must course through the veins of any lost person. And so he's admitting that's what it would be. It would be this beautiful display of the resurrection power of Christ for them to come in. Why would we not want that? Let me just pick a group. Uh, white supremacists, a group that we all should be concerned about. We should be concerned about their salvation. We should be concerned about their power as well, of course. We should be concerned about their political influence, absolutely. But what will usurp those two realities greater than the resurrection power of Christ coursing through their veins and causing them to become new creations in Jesus? Right? Wouldn't it be an awesome thing for us as a, a church to have some folks who were avowed awful people of any kind, pick any supremacy of any kind, because that's really what we've been talking about this morning, if you understand, like every one of you is a supremacist of some kind. I didn't just say a white supremacist, everybody relax, some of that may be going on, but every one of us thinks we're better than somebody else. Every one of us thinks that our belovedness is slightly better than someone else's, either because we're more consistent in reading our Bibles or we're more consistent in praying or we're more consistent in showing up at church or giving or whatever it may be. Every one of us needs the supremacy of Christ to usurp and put to death the supremacies that we place on the throne of our own hearts. So how wonderful would it be for us as a church to see some bona fide, foul, just, just terrible, arrogant, prideful people come to know Jesus. They could testify to what they once were and what they now are. Think of how that would help infuse us with, with a, a recognition that worship is a blessed necessity, not some sort of optional opportunity to be suffered. That was a little preview for the upcoming sermon series on worship. You'll hear that again, I'm sure. And so, so here, here Paul is making it clear that this would be a supreme display 
And too much, many of us are just bored with the resurrection of Christ, right? Because our lives are mundane. Our marriages are kind of languishing. Our kids are just not really getting it. And, 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 and the, you know, the society, the situation ain't great. And, and on and on it goes. We need to bear witness to the resurrection power of Christ. So we should be crying out for the Lord to allow this church to participate in that kind of power. That's what Paul is calling for the Roman church to do. And he goes on. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, that's an interesting thing for him to say. And it is, uh, we, would, we would be remiss if we were to say he's essentially saying that the Israelite people are universally saved from the jump. No, he's made it clear throughout and will make it clear further. That's not what he's talking about. Actually, the root is who? Who is the root of Jesse? Jesus Christ. Who is the holiness in the lump? Who's the leaven that makes the whole lump holy? Jesus Christ. And so he's making it clear that if Christ is at work in this, then you better believe and I mean with faith and awe that he will transform things. And he goes on, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, this is how we know what he's talking to here, talking about, do not be arrogant toward the branches. You're, you're, you've just been added in. How can you be arrogant to the ones who've been receiving the nourishment of Christ for decades, for centuries? How is it we who come along can turn back to the church traditional and point out all of the specks in her eye and refuse to deal with any of the planks in our own? I am a wicked deconstructionist. I am gifted at criticism. If you don't believe it, take me to some barbecue joint and watch me go to work. One way or the other. Right? I get it. Criticism is low-hanging fruit. Telling other people what they've got wrong instead of you taking the time to work on what you need to get right or how you can mature and grow totally makes sense. I heard a political ad this week about, I won't name the candidate, but the whole ad was just about how awful this person is as a human being and then at the end, it said, this group uh, uh, doesn't um, support any particular candidate. I'm like, uh, really? That's pretty shocking. So why didn't you include all the candidates in all their dirty laundry? But that's where we've gotten to. It's only about what someone else has wrong instead of offering, here's what we can actually do. Here's who we are in the resurrection power of Christ. I get it. The church is a mess. She has been, think of the Roman church. What if you'd been part of this church? This church was a mess. What do you think potlucks were like? You got the Gentiles serving bacon and barbecue over here, and you got the Jews looking down, their, 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 looking down on these folks for having all that. They're eating kafelka fish or whatever it is that they had back then, right? And no one was sharing. You got to admit, it was, it was a tense circumstance, it was awkward. So Paul's longing for them is them to be unified around who they are in Christ and not around all the other things, all the other things that they got wrong, all the other things that were, that were, that were not right. How is it they can be arrogant? He goes on. 
If you are, so he's saying, first thing you've got to do is confess. Are you even grafted in? This is important. We, we need to regularly confess anew who we are in Christ. This is Colossians 3. It says, if you are raised with Christ, then look to the right hand of the Father, not to the things of the earth, to mortify and to vivify. So frequently, we need to pause and go, wait, and this is not about you getting re-saved. This isn't about you doing anything magical. It is for your own heart. Am I a Christian? Do I believe that my sin has been fully dealt with in the death of Christ, past, present, and future? Do I believe that? Because if I believe that, that should affect my shame and my guilt and how often I show up before the throne of grace. Do I believe that the resurrection power of Christ courses through my veins? If so, I would walk in a different kind of newness of life. My life would look different, not triumphalistic, right? Because that, that's, that's perfection. You will not be perfected until Christ returns. So let's just take that off the table. But when I sin, which way will I turn quicker and quicker? Will I pursue reconciliation when I have spoken a crossword? Will I say that I'm genuinely sorry and seek to make sure that other people are okay who have been hurt by my words and actions? So he's saying, if you are. So we must pause for a moment and say, okay, does any of the rest of what I'm about to read apply to you? Everybody got it? Moving on. Remember, it is not you who support the root. So if we don't support the root, then how is it we could boast in anything in and of ourselves? How is it that we could ever think ourselves more supreme than anybody else? And he goes on. But the root that supports you. See, it works the other way around. In fact, John 15 should come to your mind here where Christ makes it clear that he is the vine or he is the root. We are grafted into him. And if we are in him, then guaranteed we will produce works that glorify God. You don't have a choice. The resurrection will shine through no matter what you cake on top of it. You can't keep it out. I've experienced this. There are times I just, I, I just want to so bad vent my spleen. So bad, just let somebody have it. I know, I get it. I'm a dangerous man apart from Jesus. And yet there's something that can be, I can get a little way into it. I can get a little bit out. But then conviction comes and strikes me down. And amen. Conviction comes and calls me. No, you, you don't have the authority to vent your spleen like that. You don't, you don't have the right to speak of or to another image bearer in that fashion. No matter how much you got out, you can't overcome the resurrection that courses through your veins. Praise God. It's not a li I don't have liberty to say anything or do anything I want to do. I don't. But what it does do is when, when I begin to wobble and break and try to, try to, in arrogance, be something other than who I am in Jesus, praise be to God that the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells me won't allow it to go full bore. Or at least grants me the opportunity, as 1 Corinthians 10 says, to come out of that temptation and not suffer the full weight of venting the whole thing. 
Now, I want to be really clear. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't lose it. I sure can. And sometimes lose it more than others. Now, unless you guys are worried about Susan up here, it's never at Susan because she'll just cry, and that, that'll, that destroys me. Uh, if you want to beat me, cry. That's the thing I can't overcome, guys particularly. Josh does it sometimes at the office. It's terrifying. <laughs> Josh said, no, he does not. That's not true, actually, at all. But it's, but it's very important that we recognize it's the root that supports us, not the other way around. Jesus doesn't need us. He didn't need us. He, he was incarnated. He, he, showed up. he could do it himself. But he chooses to invite us into this glorious work so that we will have things to celebrate for all eternity. We're invited into the kingdom in a way that ought move us and humble us more than it does. And he goes on. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So there's a little bit of arrogance that you can say, well, hey, he broke some of them off so that we could take their place. Therefore, that makes us better than them, right? Nope. No, it says that, he says that, that's true. There's a, there's a truth to the fact that some branches were broken off and that allowed you to come into the kingdom. However, they were broken off because of their unbelief, not because of you. They were broken off because they were disobedient in loving the Lord their God and in loving their neighbor as themselves. They were disobedient in having faith in the Lord their God. Romans 4, don't forget Romans 4. This isn't about works, it's about faith. That was what they didn't believe in. But you, because notice the contrast, but you stand fast through what? Faith. So you've got to trust that the Lord has placed you in the family. And you have to trust that he's going to keep you in the family. And you have to trust that he will use you to bring others into the family in some form or fashion. And he goes on. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Now here's what we've got to be careful. Because he's not talking about you as an individual. He's talking to a group of people. What he's showing is this is the uh, eternal consequence of us growing arrogant. When we grow arrogant, it costs the generation behind us and the generations. You understand? It is eternally costly. There's a quote, and you can quibble with this quote. I think it was Russell Moore that said it. Uh, but he, he, he made this statement. I'm pretty sure it was him. He said, look, it's not that the current generations, uh, like Gen Z, millennials, and Gen whatever else we got coming, it's not that they don't believe the doctrines of the church. I would quibble with that a little bit, but, but I think his point's salient. The problem is they don't believe that the church actually believes its doctrine. There's a lot of truth in that. See, we talk about reconciliation all the time, right? We talk about how you ought to leave at the altar, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, leave at the altar your offering, and if you know somebody else has a problem with you, now, did you hear what I just said? That, that strikes me so supremely. It's not that it's their responsibility to come to you. It is. But even if you know they have a problem with you, you are to go and try to make it right. Offer nothing in worship until that is made right. Is that what we do at the church? 
They're like, ah, you know, Jesus' death is still applied. I'll get to it some point next week sometime. I ain't worried about it. Let's not get excited. Jesus died for my sins. He did. But what about the display that matters to the generations that are coming? Jesus also makes it clear that your love for the poor will have an impact on your eternity. The Old Testament says it too, how you treat the poor is how you treat your maker because they're image bearers. How has the church done in treating the poor? By and large, some have been extremely faithful. Praise God. They're the remnant. They're keeping us afloat. Others, not so much. Any number of political issues. Right? We say Christ is king. God's kingdom uh, demands all. Now let's pause and sing the battle hymn of the republic which is in a lot of hymnals. Some of them in churches y'all been to. Can we conflate the kingdoms and the kings? Nope. And the coming generations sense it, see it. Now, you may say, well, they're dumb too. Okay, here we go, right? You just unearthed your arrogance. How are they supposed to know if we're not the ones to show them since we are the hands and feet of Jesus? We're the body of Christ. So look at the cost to the coming generation. What, what will it say to the children of this church if we got, now what will that say to them? Some of you have legitimate reasons why you can't teach. I understand. Don't, don't, don't go getting overly convinced. We'll figure it out. But we can, we can all pray that the Spirit would be at work, right? That, that we would have opportunities to make sure that the coming generations would know Jesus for sure. What a great opportunity and gift, even if they are being held hostage by their parents at some level. Because the resurrecting power of Christ can overcome even that thought too. And so it's critical that we see this isn't about us. How selfish are we to try to make this text about us? I'm just, don't, don't break me off. You know, I, I want to make sure I stay in. No, you're in. You've been predestined. Where would you think you could lose that? No, this is talking about what will happen to the coming generations. In fact, he, he, God speaks of it in Ezekiel. He makes it very clear that the generations are not broken off or grafted in based on what the previous generation does, but it is very important that they be able to hear it. There has to be a, a message. It has to, be, has to go forward. Now, just because God said there would be a remnant doesn't let us off the hook. Now, does it? Because we are the church. We are called to display the glory of God in and through the person and work of Christ. He says... Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen. Now, this is not eternal severity. This is judgment. Judgment's severe. To be cast into exile, to, to undergo the, the heavy hand of the Lord upon us, the conviction of the Spirit, it's a severe thing. But also note the kindness. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Now, again, if you hear that as an individual, you say, I could lose my salvation. No, this is about us as a people. This is about making sure that we continue in the kindness of God for the sake of those in youth group, for the sake of those in children's ministry, for the sake of all of the babies that are being entrusted to us as a people. He says, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. 
For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these nat- the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive trees? Essentially saying, it, it, God can do this. Do we in faith believe that the Lord can bring the lost in? Do we uh, want to participate in aiding the lost coming into the church? The answer is not, as, as, as Mark Dever would say, all heresy begins with a desire to reach more people for Jesus. Like you, you, is the, the answer is not, let's, let's uh, dumb it down. Let's, let's not talk about judgment. Let, let's not talk about reconciliation or some of the hard things. Don't, don't talk about politics, uh, uh, certainly in the way you talk about it, Cameron. Don't preach from the Old Testament, especially those minor prophets. We've got seven and five to go, seven under our belt, five if the Lord allows me to live that long. And so, so it's, it's, it's not that we would want to in any way, shape, nor form make it less of the truth of the gospel. Now, if anything, we would want to live it out even more robustly, which is why worship is so critical to who and whose we are and the mission of the church, which is why it's critical that when we hear these theological things that they don't turn us inward and cause us to focus selfishly upon ourselves, but instead ask, Lord, how can we use this for your glory, our joy, and the life of the world? Listen to what John Calvin says of this. He says, For if the cutting off of the Jews was through unbelief, and if the engrafting of the Gentiles was by faith, what was their duty but to acknowledge the favor of God and also to cherish modesty and humbleness of mind? He's saying, essentially, if you are chosen by God, that should humble you. If anything else, it should make you more modest in your views of things. It should make you more humble in your views of things, not triple down, not become even more obnoxious, not become more insufferable, more sanctimonious. No. He goes on. For it is the nature of faith and what properly belongs to it to generate humility and fear. See, that's what it should produce in us. It should produce a humility that God would choose us, and a genuine fear of the Lord. Remember, all wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And what does that mean? That we're scared and terrified of him? No, he's drawing us to himself. But we must be in awe of him as creator. We must recognize that, yes, he is sovereign. We should bow down to him in worship. It is a submission, not a retreat from so, so our, our salvation ought to make us the most humble and creative people in any given room in the power of the Spirit. So I want to ask you the tough question that you need to meditate on and cry out to the Spirit, much like the psalmist does. Show me the anxieties of my heart, O oh Lord. In which areas of your life do you, now I am talking to you individualistically now. This isn't just a great people question. We, we also need to answer it as a church too, by the way. It would be important for us to kind of step back even a bit further, but we've got to start with ourselves. So where do you need to mortify pride for the sake of your relationship with God and with others? Not, not an impersonal others. Obviously start with your nearest neighbor who lives in your house. 
right? Who lives in your house and how are you engaging with them in ways that are arrogant? Now, this is not for you to point out the speck in someone else's eye. Like, hey, did you hear Cameron's sermon? What did you come up with? Because I, I want to match it against my list. Make sure you got everything. No. I mean, you guys are laughing like, I would never do that. I do some marital counseling on the side. Uh, <laughs> I hear it a lot. It's never that clear, though, is it? Which would probably make it easier if we would just come out and be all the way arrogant, full-throated. We tried to hide behind some other sanctimony and spirituality. So you need to look at that. And then also consider us as a church. What's our personality as a church? What are some ways in which we as a church think Christ's community, don't drag us into the whole Presbyterian thing. We, we can't account for all that. We only account for who we are. But we're maybe as we as a church failing to be hospitable or failing in some way to exercise humility uh, and maybe failing to mortify what we need to mortify as a church, right? Because the whole church has uh, a flavor and a feel to it. And you may say, well, Cameron, I, <laughs> that sounds like your problem. No. In part, it is. It's yours, too. It's ours together. Hey, Sabbath, this is a ceasefire. You need to be practicing for heaven. You're not going to deal with arrogance in heaven, but do put it on your calendar to deal with come Monday or Tuesday, whenever you feel like you can handle it, and think about it. Let the Spirit do work in us and draw us further up and further into the person and work of Christ, that he would be better displayed in us, that we would have the great joy of having children from our children's ministry confess Christ. He's given us so many of them. That we would have friends and neighbors who would want to be not just in relationship with you, but the church that has shaped and formed you in the image of Christ. So they too could be shaped and formed. And what a great gift it would be to this community for that to be true of us. Now, after having heard all this, what a great gift it is that we get to see the fruit of some of those labors. This morning, we're going to welcome to the table uh, Emily Bowman. So Emily and your family, if you would come forward, the Bowmans, if y'all would come on up. Uh, she has been baptized, and she wants to come and join the rest of us in hospitality at the table of the Lord. She wants to benefit from the means of grace. And some of y'all have been a part of that. Either you have taught her in children's ministry or had some interaction with her, or you sit near her and maybe she notices, hey, you're some of the few people that sing in here. Right? There's a hospitality to that. And she wants to be a part of this church and benefit from the means of grace. What a gift that we get to celebrate that after all we've heard. Right? Now, I'm going to ask her the membership questions. Now, let me just say, they're going to sound... Uh, a little modified from what you've heard. Now, for those of you who are worried about that, the BCO doesn't actually require membership questions. It's suggested. And I think for her sake and our sake too, it helps to hear it a little bit different every now and again. It's the same content. It's going to be the same thing. It's just simplified a little bit for her sake and maybe even ours. So, Emily, do you confess that you, uh, you struggle with sin and that, that it, if Jesus were not to redeem you, God would be just in judging you? And do you also confess that you need Jesus to save you from that, that it is Jesus who God sent to redeem you, and he is at work in your life and heart? Do you also confess that you need the Holy Spirit to continue in what the, the work that Christ has started and, and will complete in you, but that you need to, to participate uh, in the disciplines of grace 
in the power of the Holy Spirit. And do you also uh, admit that you'll help us in worship? You'll sing, you'll, you'll, you'll come to the table, uh, you, you will clap when it's appropriate, uh, or sometimes even when it's inappropriate, you can. You might even amen every now and again, but that you would help the work of the church to be hospitable to our friends and neighbors. And, and do you also submit to this group of people as your brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as the leadership of the church, do you submit to our uh, being able to speak into your life and love and care for and disciple you? All right, now I'm going to turn to you, the congregation. If you're a member of this church, with the raising of your right hand, uh, if you would acknowledge that you are willing to support the Bowmans and Emily in her journey to grow further into the image of Christ and participate uh, in the mission that the Lord has called her and the rest of us to. Do you? All right. They're all supportive. I want to offer you the right hand of fellowship. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for Emily and for us and uh, for the table. And then Matt O'Sullivan, you're helping me out at the front up here. And then if the other two elders who are helping at the back table could uh, go ahead and go toward the back table. Uh, let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks that on a day when we would be challenged to mortify our arrogance toward others, that you would draw a child to yourself and that we would get to hear her profession of faith, that she is uh, acting on and seeing the fullness of her baptism come to fruition, that Christ has died for her, and that that puts to death shame and guilt and fear of wrath, being afraid of you, Lord, but instead it draws her to you. Thank you that she confesses that the resurrection power of the Lord helps her to walk in newness of life, as she is indwelt by the Spirit, may her confession stir us this day to be in awe of you. God, thank you that she is joining us at the table. I pray that you would use the elements of this table to nourish us in mission and in faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you would, you can return to your seats. You're going to be on the other side. And let's remember what it was that Jesus said uh, on the night that he was giving to his disciples something, a means of grace to remember who and whose they were. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this, this is my body and it is given for you. And essentially he was saying to them that their sins, past, present, and future, were being taken care of in his death. That the wrath of God was being satisfied toward those sins so that they would be able to come boldly before the throne of grace to receive what they need. And in that same meal, as the meal went on, he took the cup and he raised it. He said, this, this is my blood spilled for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the blood of the new covenant. That they would be able to display the beauty of the law of the Lord, that they could love God with all their heart, soul, and mind because what Jesus had done for them, that their worship would be effectual. Even when they don't feel it, God is at work. And he also meant that they would be able to love their neighbor as they themselves have been loved. That they would be able to persevere and not grow weary in doing good. What a gift it is that that same power that was true for the disciples on that night is true for us here this morning. That the Holy Spirit 
takes us before the very throne of Christ, the one who has invited us to this table, the one who has made it hospitably possible for us to come. And so it's important that you be a believer if you come to this table. If you're not a believer here this morning, I just ask that you not partake of the table because it's meaningless to you. And also, too, if you harbor unforgiveness towards someone, you need to take, take a break on the table until you can, you can work through that. And we're, we're happy to help you with that. But you, you're not God. You can't say someone is unforgivable. That's arrogant, and that needs to be mortified in a show of humility. But for everybody else who trusts that their sin is taken care of in Christ, even the sins that you've committed this morning or during this service or you'll commit later today, you need this table. You need this table to endure, to pursue reconciliation, to be missional, to do all of the things that we've talked about this morning. It, it requires the work of the Spirit in and through us. And this table is a nourishment to that end. And so as the word is made visible to us, may we give thanks to the Lord. Now, let me give you some instructions. This side of the room will start back to front. You'll exit to the outside, come across the table, return to the inside. This side of the room, you'll come to Matt and I, uh, or me and Matt, however that works out, uh, and you'll, you'll exit uh, from front to back to the inside, and you'll return on the outside. Now, when you come up, again, if you want both elements, do, do us a, a favor, hold out both hands. If you only want the gluten-free, uh, where it's the, the wafer and, and the juice together, and you, you can want it even though you may not have a gluten issue, but if that's what you want, please just give us one hand to the person who is serving the cup. All right, that'll help us. Now, if you mess that up, we'll figure it out, right? Because Jesus is good. All right, so... Let me pray for us. If you would, go ahead and stand, and then you'll come. Father, you are gracious to nourish us in the mission and in the person and work of Christ. You are, you are gracious, so gracious, to offer us this bread and this cup. Not, not just as, as elements themselves, but what they signify and point to. Help us, O oh Lord, to in humility. Uh, to, to mortify our arrogance and, to, and to, to love you and to love our neighbors, to love the lost, to, to not grow weary in doing good, though it will require great wisdom and perseverance. God, would you nourish us this day? Help us be in awe and in fear of the Lord and help us remember in humility who and whose we are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.